Welcome to Rogue Grace, the delayed version in the afternoon here. Sorry about that. Trying to get my act together here. Whew, a lot of stuff going on with when it's this time of year, football season, soccer season, swimming season, um, and then all kinds of stuff on top of that with the ministry and the church and everything, and you wonder where the time goes. But thank you for your patience, and it's great to be here. It really is. I really enjoy going through the book of Hebrews together as we began this morning, chapter 3. And we'll continue on in that chapter in this uh, PM edition of Rogue Grace giving you your daily dose of good news. So keep in mind, as this letter was written to the, the Christians, that the temple was still standing. And that is important to realize that in the backdrop of these words, looming over them, if you would, is the structure of one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And that would be the temple that King Herod had not necessarily built, but by the time he was done reestablishing, or what's the word, Um, remaking it, for lack of better term, that it was one of the great wonders of the world. It could be seen from miles coming into the city. And that is why the disciples took Jesus there one day and showed him the glory. They were wanting to discuss the power of the temple. And Jesus said to them, don't be too impressed because I tell you not one stone will remain upon another. And they asked, well, when will these things be? And Jesus told them in Matthew 24, in what we call the Olivet Discourse, because to Jesus, to the disciples, to the Hebrews, the temple being destroyed was unthinkable, not to Jesus, but to the others, but to Jesus as well, it would be the, 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 uh, equated with the end of the world. Because that was the center of their faith. And it was the end of the world. The world as they knew it, the world as the world knew it. 2,000 years ago, and it still has not been rebuilt to this day. So, there was a definite pull from this incredible structure that King Herod wanted to remake because he didn't feel as though it was 
adequate enough for his taste and for the glory of his administration. (laughs) He wanted to take the whole city up to the next level, so to speak. And so 40 years or more were spent on refurbishing the temple. That's right. Years and years, decades and decades. Maybe you thought your remodel project took too long. Probably did. But imagine this remodel project. When he was refurbishing the temple, decades upon decades And it was finally completed. Even after Herod had died, he didn't even see the completion of it. But it was finally completed under his sons just before being destroyed completely by the Roman Empire. And yet that had not yet occurred, this destruction. Jesus foretold it would happen. History states unequivocally that it did happen in the year 70 AD. But when Hebrews was written, it was still maybe five years away from being destroyed. So it was about completed in all of its glory. It had millennia of history, that temple grounds upon which It sat because David bought it. Solomon built the first temple on it. When that was destroyed, they built another one. And that's the one that King Herod took those many, many years to remodel and reestablish. And now it finally is, but it had all of that history behind it as well. It would really, to me, Take a special work of the Holy Spirit to allow someone to make the transition from out of the temple when it was still standing. I mean, it really, it's it's a miracle even when it's not standing, when 2,000 years later we can point to it and say, God was stating something powerful. That the old is gone and the new has been ushered in No longer do we need to be under the tenets of the temple of sacrifices and priesthood and ordinances. But to have it still standing, to have those Jewish believers in Jerusalem worshiping Jesus, not on the traditional Sabbath day, on a Saturday, but on a Sunday, to not celebrate Passover as they once did, but take communion. To worship a man. You see, that was a monotheistic culture as if there ever was one. They had been so gorged, if you would, on idolatry, on idols and sacrificing to false gods, when they were exiled to Babylon for those 70 years, some 500 years before the time of Jesus, 
that by the time of Jesus, they wanted nothing to do with an idol. They didn't even want to watch an episode of American Idol. And so it would be outrageous, as we saw in many of their reactions in the gospel accounts, for them to even consider worshiping a man. But then also to consider that they worshiped him in the looming shadow of the temple. It definitely, that's why I think there definitely was the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in unique and powerful ways there in the book of Acts in the early church. So, this quandary, this inclination, and this drifting of certain Christians to begin going back under the temple and its ordinances is the focal point of the letter of Hebrews. And you and I don't have a structure that we might be inclined towards necessarily. Ordinances that we keep and days that we keep necessarily in the circle of Christianity that we generally run in those who listen to this radio station or attend Applegate. But the book of Hebrews is so relevant because it's the idea of drifting back up under an old mindset that goes, it's so old, it goes before the temple. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. <laughs> to the beginning. When, remember, Cain was upset because he drew from the work of his hands his harvest from the ground and offered it to God. And Abel simply offered a, a, a lamb from his flock and God was pleased, received Abel's sacrifice. And ever since then, there's this inclination to be like Cain. And say, we, we believe in you, God, we honor you, God, and we want to be a part of your work of righteousness in our lives. Now, I want God to work righteousness in my life. I want him to make me holy, to make me more like Christ. I want to be, by the time I go from this earth, more like Jesus than when I first arrived. That's the goal. But the sneaky factor is so often we want to contribute to that. So it was God's grace and my effort. But God knows that my effort does no good even if it seems to have, in the long run, it does not. Because it is stained with ulterior motives. It is seeking to compensate for other places that are flaws and sins. And so often in human nature, when we know we've done some good things, we almost give ourselves some leeway, almost like permission to back off in other areas 
and give in to a certain temptation or whatever. And that's the problem with not being the fruit of the spirit, but the work of the flesh, as Galatians calls it. It brings about dead works, as Hebrews says. So we begin to drift back into this co-righteousness. Not a complete self-righteousness, but a co-righteousness in which we trust in Jesus, we, we honor the work of the cross, and then we say, what can I do? Well, there's plenty for you to do but nothing in regards for you to do when it comes with your standing in the eyes of God. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says all of our righteousness, our self-righteousness, is as filthy rags. So instead of being robed in the beauty and glory of Jesus, if I seek to be righteous through my own work, an effort, an endeavor in my own strength rather than completely relying on God's grace both when I succeed and I fail. Then all that is in the eyes of God are filthy rags in comparison to being robed in Jesus Christ. So one of the central tenets or images of the old covenant was angels. And we looked in Hebrews chapter one and two, how Jesus is better than the angels. Along with an angel or angels would be a man named Moses. And so Moses was esteemed as kind of a national hero of sorts. He was, of course, the giver of the law, delivering his people out of Egypt. Up until the Lord, there was nobody that could really compare to Moses. And yet Jesus would later say in Matthew chapter 11 that the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than than John the Baptist, who was the greatest man ever born of a woman. So for a variety of reasons that I probably won't get into now, Jesus placed John the Baptist on an even higher level than Moses. If we were to go about ranking these Old Testament prophets and priests and hero, heroic figures, Okay, but then he goes on to say in the next sentence, but even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest under the old covenant. Wow, that's because in the kingdom of God, we are saved, we are made righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Moses can't even come close to the righteousness of of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus cried, it is finished, all of a sudden, Moses' righteousness, Elijah's, 
as well as Esther's and everyone else in the Old Testament, their righteousness was now completely contingent upon Jesus's righteousness, like the whole world, like you, like I. What that means is, even today in heaven, and when we are there as well one day, there's no rank. Everybody's righteousness is contingent upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even the righteousness of the greatest person who ever lived before Jesus finished the work on the cross, even that person's righteousness is less than the least who come into the kingdom through Jesus' righteousness. Aren't you glad that God gave us the gift of Jesus' righteousness? That he's not evaluating me based on mine? That he's not even wanting, not even going to bless me today on my own merit, but by faith in his righteousness? We'll be right back.
So going back to our text in the book of Hebrews, as we stated in the last segment, he is now going to address another integral part of the old covenant and compare that with Jesus. Because there were people who were being swayed or drifting back into the old covenant, perhaps still trying or wanting to retain their Christianity, but to add to the Christianity back their former Judaism. And that mentality can be very, very, um, can be very subtle, but very prominent, even to this day. Not the mentality of going back to Judaism per se, but to go through the doors of the finished work of the cross. And then once there for a while to come back, hoping to retain some of the beautiful qualities of Jesus and still maybe believing that he has risen from the dead, but also inherently, subtly believing that one's merit for blessing, one's qualification for being used in ministry by God, or anointing whatever it is that they do in raising their kids or going to work, we can begin to subtly believe that that has to do with how well I am doing. And so Hebrews is going to separate that completely. And it does so through the person of Moses. We already looked at angels the last couple of days, that Jesus is superior to them. That even if these Old Testament, New Testament slash believers were to see an angel, it wouldn't compare still to the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so now in chapter 3, he's going to bring in next in order to address the person of Moses. For he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Jesus and Moses were both faithful men. Faithful to the call. Faithful to the ministry. 
faithful to shepherding God's people and leading them and obeying God's commands. And yet, so the writer of Hebrews is not slow to acknowledge that about Moses. This isn't going to be a hit the Moses pinata session. That's not what his intention is. His intention is to say, as faithful as both of those men were, yet Moses was simply faithful in the house as a servant. Jesus was faithful as the builder of the house as a son. It's a whole new dimension. So in the first century, if someone was wealthy and they had an estate built, and the lead engineer or the main construction guy did well, performed admirably, then he was faithful in building that house. But yet he is not to be on the same level as the one who owns the house. (laughs) See? Moses had a great part in setting up the structure through the old covenant, through the Ten Commandments, but ultimately the entire thing is being built by Jesus. All of that is pointing to all the laws and the, the old covenant is pointing to the greater reality of the new covenant where God fulfills the laws on our behalf and then writes his laws on our heart. And Jesus, who created all things, is given that much more honor than even Moses. So this would be a reminder, maybe even kind of a smack in the face of sorts to those Christians who were tending to go back up under Moses. They would be reminded he is a great man, but it's not even worth comparing to the work of Jesus and what he accomplished through the finished work of the cross. And I, I like this because I want to be like, like this. I want to be like Moses. I want to be faithful to what God has called me to be as a man, as a minister, as a father and a husband. I want to be faithful. But I like the fact that like Moses' faithfulness, all of my faithfulness is enclosed within Jesus' faithfulness. So my faithfulness, which I desire, will not at all be the factor that determines my righteousness or my unrighteousness. It's the fact that I'm in the house. I'm in Jesus and in his finished work. Therefore then, I want to be righteous. I want to live more like Jesus. I want to overcome addictions and sins and habits. But not as a basis for being righteous, but that I already am. The classic story I've told before is one that's based in the 1860s in the rural South during the time of of slavery 
the early 1860s and a certain southern man, a white man, makes his way to the city square where there's a slave auction taking place. One by one, men and women and children are auctioned off to various places and sold off into various houses. And then the little girl comes up for the the, the auction. She's placed on the stand and the, the auctioning begins. And it goes back and forth for a while, but finally this man who was determined to win this particular auction. He had the last bid and he won and she is given to him after he signs the papers. And they begin then to walk back to his estate in the general direction of his house. And she's following a few feet behind him and he's walking straight ahead. And then he stops maybe a couple hundred feet before his driveway begins. I don't think they called it a driveway back then. Before the path that leads to his house begins. And he says to her, you're free to go. I purchased your freedom. And he took the paper and He signed the back and gave it to her. She was trying to process all of this. He said, you're free to go wherever you want. And she said, I'm free to go wherever I want? Yes, he said, with something of a gleam in his eye. And then, still standing there, she said, can I say whatever I want to say? Yes. And be whatever I want to be? Of course. She thought about this for one more minute and then once again asked, so you're saying I can go wherever I want to go? He said, of course. She looked at him and she said, then I choose to go with you. And she walked into his house and became his daughter. And When I want to be righteous, it comes from, it stems from knowing I am righteous or unrighteous and it has nothing to do with what I do or who I am or where I go or what I say. But when I know this, when I truly grasp this, more and more I say to the Lord, I want to go with you. I want to walk in your ways. Lord, I love you. So, Moses' righteousness, though not to be compared to Jesus, is a good example in the sense of it's housed, it's encompassed in Jesus' faithfulness. Wow. We'll be right back.
confession, Lord, that we are weak, so very weak, but you are strong. And though we've nothing, Lord, to lay at your feet, we come to your feet and say, help us along. Confession, Lord, that we are weak, so very weak, but you are strong. And though we've nothing, Lord, to lay at your feet, we come to your feet and say, Help us along. heart and a contract spirit you have yet to deny your heart of mercy beats with love strong current let the river flow God by your spirit now Lord we cry let your mercies fall from
finish our thought from Hebrews chapter 3 verse 2 and 3 we read again for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses so if another person seems to be finding their identity and how well they are doing or keeping commandments or seeming to walk in the ways of Moses or anything like that. By your knowing that Jesus is counted of more worthy and more glory than Moses, you have already set yourself in a place that that person cannot attain aside from coming to the same conclusion that you have. And the beauty of it is it will actually, in the long run, create a greater uh, multiplication and cultivation of true fruitfulness in your life where you become more and more like the person you know you can be or should be than the person who is striving to do so and taking a sense of glory for what they do and perhaps then feeling shame for when they don't. But the glory of Jesus is greater than that of Moses. So it eliminates both self-boasting and self-condemnation. So let us praise and glorify the name of Jesus. Rest in his finished work of the cross. Thanks for tuning in. We will continue in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 tomorrow, hitting the next aspect of the old covenant that was so important. 
rightly so, to the people of Israel, but has been fulfilled completely so by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is Peter John. Thank you for tuning in. Grow in grace. God bless you.